Hello and welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset. It's Sam Bruce. Pleasure to have Christy Doran back down under. He's made the journey south here. Long and arduous trip, mate, and uh, a little bit under the weather. Oh, fractionally under weather, but this is, you know, we all copped it from the Worthos to the Harpers to the Bruces. Get to that last couple of days of the World Cup and you're about to fly home and you start to just feel a bit under the weather. But yeah, it's great to be home. I'll tell you what, I'm looking forward to diving into the beautiful waters that we have in this coastline. There's nothing better than Australia. So good to be here and what a tumultuous kind of couple of weeks it's been and we're going to dissect a bit of it now, aren't we? We sure are. It's a big episode, not just for what's gone on this week with uh, Eddie Jones' departure on Sunday afternoon, finally confirmed by Rugby Australia on Tuesday morning. But, mate, it's also our 100th episode. So um, three years in, you know, I guess we're right with maybe not the final episode of, of 2023, but um, a big shout-out to everyone who's listened um, over the course of the past three years. Uh, the numbers continue to climb year on year, up about 35%. Um, so thank you for sticking with us and maybe telling your friends around the places, your friends and family, about what an engaging or perhaps... Um, at times, light-hearted. Listen, this can be at times. So we we appreciate your your uh, your patronage uh, nonetheless, and uh, and hope you'll be back again with us next year. Um, but mate, let, let's dive into it. Um, look, uh, it's a bit hard to know where to start with this one. A bit of I, I guess if we we go back chronologically to to January sixteen this year, and um, you got the mail along with a couple of others around what was happening about an hour before uh, Rugby Australia. Uh, revealed that Eddie Jones had been appointed Wallabies coach and Dave Rennie sacked. Um, we we did a pod later that afternoon and we, uh, I think I, I've been long on the record of saying I, I didn't agree with the decision that I thought Dave Rennie deserved the opportunity to go through. But we agreed that it was going to be a, an injection of, uh, I guess, momentum and interest and um, back and front pages even for the game in Australia. And it wasn't going to be dull. Um, Eddie Jones return it certainly never was and I, I thought we might have hit this point in two three years time given how vividly I remember the disintegration of Jones first year in tenure but not in my wildest dreams that I think it was going to be this the case after after 10 months um, given what we learned in Japan uh, along the way sorry not in Japan in France um, the juncture that we reached on, on Sunday evening uh, came as no surprise but um, it was still a fairly uh, low moment and it's a, a mixture of emotions, I think, for the Australian rugby community around a bit of relief, a bit of anger, um, frustration, and then potentially a little bit of hope looking to the future. Um, h- how did you reflect on it uh, this week? Yeah, I've been reflecting on it all the way through and, and probably for 18 months because it was if you scroll back even to July 2022 when when Rugby Australia hosted, um, Hamish McLennan hosted Eddie Jones over dinner. And I was, to, to be honest, I, I sat in Australia for six months knowing that Hamish McLennan had had Eddie Jones over for dinner. And it was always with the plan of not around 2023, Eddie Jones returning, but 2024. And they had, a, obviously, dinner. Uh, Hamish's wife had cooked them dinner and there was... Phil Wall was involved, Eddie Maradoss was involved. And so I knew for some time that Eddie Jones was interested, whether or not it was, or, you know, the timelines were going to marry up, remained to be seen. I was privy to a few conversations that were taking place regarding selection and the rest of it, some probing. And 
it, it came in, uh, and obviously the end of season spring tour, which I was kind of a part of last year, and all roads in the end led to, for Hamish McLennan at least, led for Eddie Jones. And the defeat to Italy was probably the tipping point where, where Australia and Rugby Australia expected the Wallabies to beat England in July. They won the first test against the odds despite a yellow card, uh, Darcy Swain, uh, and they thought that that the Wallabies were on an upwards trajectory, but then everything fell flat, the music died, and and the narrow defeats had been building for a long, long time. And I remember Drew Mitchell talking off the back of the defeat to France, where everyone was going, hey, how goes this, how goes this, where we're so close to beating a Six Nations champion. Or, but then once again, it was always another close defeat. And it's been a close defeat for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, the Italy defeat was embarrassing for Hamish, particularly because he was there. Um, some of the Wallabies were a really low point, you know, despite the fact that everyone talks about the fact that they were loving life under Dave Rooney, wasn't necessarily the case. There's been a fair bit of revisionist history over the last 18 months about how rosy things were. And, Clearly, when Eddie got sacked, it was, okay, here's an opportunity to pounce. And it occurred when Andy Marados was in South Africa on an extended break, uh, despite so many things going on in the background. And I thought, and I think everyone did, that well, most, the majority of of those were tracking it closely was, wow, this was a big decision to get rid of Dave Reddy at the start of 2023. However, if it means that you can have Eddie Jones on board, a year earlier, proven track records and World Cups. Um, the fact that there's a Lions series, there could be a lot of... Um, you can understand the decision about pouncing your now, particularly if there's a link to him to the USA or Japan. Um, uh, let's strike whilst the iron's hot. Thanks very much, Dave. 38% win record. Things were brilliant, but we could see... you uh, certainly not a bad person, certainly not a bad coach, but things for whatever reason weren't working out from a high performance perspective so you put that context around it all and i go i can understand why eddie jones was brought back and and clearly it's not worked at all and you could see a real tipping point not necessarily in the first few months because everywhere he went he was apported wasn't he brucey you know you go up on a big screen at super rugby matches and you'd get it not necessarily a standing ovation but you'd get a massive round of applause and you compare that to the booze right the way throughout the experience in prayer and then it was chalk and cheese, the reaction to it. So I, I reflect on it going, wow, like when you, we all bought it, maybe we drank the Kool-Aid, maybe we all thought that um, he was going to be able to, to, to work his magic. He certainly hasn't. It's, it's been a, uh, you know, it's it, we've reached the point like that, that point on the cliff and everything has nosedived since and there's not been a single good thing that could really talk about Australian rugby in the last few months and that's probably the disappointing nature of it all however I do say and we'll touch on this further in the discussion a lot of guys that are giving opportunity that will continue to play for the Wallabies going forward and there's barely a Wallaby out of that world cup where you who went and the 33 players that you'd go the international careers is over and that's including Nick White um James Slipper guys at a 33, 34. There's only four or five that were over the age of 30 when they went there. Um, this is a squad that, presuming that the majority of them, the right players, they should still be there for 2027. And that's the one really blessing in disguise that 
we haven't really touched on, but but we will, I'm sure, in years to come. If we focus in, mate, on on Hamish McLennan for a start here, and the the talk has been that this was a essentially a captain's pick. He he certainly led the charge for Jones's recruitment. Um, you mentioned the the dinner at his house. I think his wife came again. Uh, beautiful Portuguese chicken um, uh, was cooked up, and and she's actually been defending Hamish. I think on um, Instagram yeah. this week, which is probably dangerous territory once you you get into that area. But we. Um, We'll leave that there. Um, I wonder whether his lack of expertise in a situation like this, let's call it rugby expertise, not business expertise, because we know he's he's had plenty of that. But he probably didn't think around, okay, I sack the coach. There's every chance that these assistants will go as well. And that um, leaves the incoming coach, in this case, Eddie Jones, with um, not only having to you know get his head around a squad and tactics and a game plan and, and players he essentially hasn't been watching too closely for the past few years, but also assemble a coaching team around him. We know how important that extended uh, coaching group is. And and we've spoken about it before. The, the I guess the cobbled together group of individuals that he came up with from there and uh, in, you know, Dan Palmer, a scrum coach coaching the line out and a former French halfback coaching them all. And a rugby league defensive coach who he had it for a couple of months in England before he sacking parachuted him in Jason Riles coaching attack, um, who was the skills coach previously with England. And it was just a, all over the shop. And, and, and I, I wonder now in hindsight, if, if Hamish McLennan thought about that part of his decision uh, and the board by ratifying, I guess, that call as well, whether now, you know, they look back and go, well, hang on, that was, we didn't consider that. And, and that was a, a knock-on effect that we, we blatantly just did not um, bring into our, our thinking around this situation. And I know there's a, you can do that with a lot of, you know, um, incidents and events and various junctures across this, this absolute turd, turgid season that Australian rugby and the Wallabies in particular have had. But that to me was, you know, if you're making a call of, of that nature, then you, you've got to absolutely be signed off on every possible little um, problem that could come up um, along the line when doing so. Yeah, and they're great points from uh, the destabilising nature of the coaching team, the mad scientist approach that he ended up taking to, to it and with it, the lack of detail and the game plan. Uh, I think those two things isolated alone um, meant that the young team that he, the young uh, squad that he selected, uh, uh, you know, buckled under the pressure. Um, because I think if he had a more experienced coaching team around him with a, a game plan that was more suited to the Carter Gordons of the world or the Tate Dervants or whoever it might be, I think it may have actually they might have been able to come through this to, to, to win that game against Fiji, make a quarterfinal, and you never know what could happen there. But the fact that there were so many spinning plays, I think in the end, when one crashed, they all crashed, and, and, it, and it looks even worse for it. Uh, this was a high-risk strategy that that really broke down. Like I, I don't think anyone could have imagined necessarily that Dan McKellar was... Uh, like he was asked to apply for the Leicester job and I was in New Zealand at the time when I got a couple of messages around um, Dan being on the shortlist and then I was fortunate enough to find that out pretty early doors and he told me straight out, 
I, I didn't apply for that. Now, had he been there, I think that would have been, uh, we wouldn't have seen some of the things that we saw with the coaching team. He had a couple of early meetings with Eddie and was concerned about things, but I don't know if he would have accepted another job because Leicester Tigers is a huge role. So that obviously came about with Steve Borthwick replacing uh, Eddie Jones at England. So there was already those couple of things. Like There was no foregone conclusion that Steve Borthwick would replace Eddie Jones. That obviously occurred after he was sacked. And then as a result, they headhunt Dan McKellar, who takes that. Laurie Stisher, he was told early on by Eddie in one of the first conversations about it that he Eddie thought that by having Laurie on there there would be too much of a Brumbies bias now that was a thing and that was a concern for more than 12 months because I remember uh, others uh, Dan Keller for instance being fearful of this anti-Queensland perception we've got to remember that there was a lot of Queenslanders that were left out of that side in 2022, particularly around that English series of July last year. And um, and Dan came under a fair bit of scrutiny. There was this perceived Brumbies bias, particularly when then Dan, uh, when Laurie Fisher ends up replacing Matt Taylor. It's uh, another Brumbies person there. So when Eddie Jones and others talk about the political factions that exist within Australian rugby, they are real. You only have to look at comment sections to know the uh, Queenslanders get frustrated by New South Welsh and people and, and vice versa and the Brumbies are kind of there stuck in the middle and um, they think everyone's out to get them basically. But it's, yes, yeah. When you think about the, the, the year that was, everything that could go wrong did go wrong and... I don't think anyone would have possibly imagined that, planned for that, particularly Hamish McLennan, particularly the Rugby Australia board. I, I, you know, They all knew that there was a fair bit of risk, but I think they also thought there was risk by not pouncing on Eddie Joe's time. It's amazing less than a year later that he's, that he's no longer in the game in, in Australian rugby. And probably never to be seen uh, in any role, in any capacity with Australian rugby again. Um, Clearly, mate, that there's a lot of anger and frustration out there directed towards towards Hamish McLennan, and I think probably less so Phil War at this point in time, given he was on the board, um, but he's only been the CEO CEO role rather officially since um, late June, early July. I think his his start date was, but uh, Hamish is certainly very defiant around um, him not exiting as well. Um, I'm not a quitter. Uh, spoke about not wanting to. They're wanting to show his children rather that when things get tough, you, you don't walk away from them. Now, that's admirable, right? And and that's a lesson I think that any any parent would would want to teach their their children. Um, but is is there a scenario that you see um, moving forward that the the states, as it stands, I believe, with the constitution, would have to move? I, I think I assume a vote of no confidence in the board through the existing constitutional framework of Australian rugby. Um, Obviously, there's, you know, some parts are united around the push for centralisation. Clearly, the Waratahs are one of those, the Reds and Brumbies less so. And the, the the Force and Rebels, I think, sort of, you know, having a bob or two each way at the moment. Um, but do you feel that, that Hamish McLennan is secure going future, do you, going forward rather? Do you feel that he will be the chairman uh, into next year and beyond? Or, or are there rumblings out there in the background that there, there could be a, a move against the board or even... At least some members of the board, because you know, apart from a couple of former Wallabies on there and some business folk, there's 
There's a couple of faceless types on there as well um, that a lot of people, a lot of Australian rugby fans probably aren't aware of. Um, do you foresee any change, I guess, at board level? Yeah, well, accountability is the big kind of thing that people are asking for. And what does accountability mean? Does it mean you just ask someone and that's accountability? Uh, I don't know if it necessarily is. I think accountability is totally looking at what they did, what they did right, what they did wrong, was the correct procedure taken, um, and, and how do we learn from this? Uh, and you're right, Hamish should been who's kind of dug his heels in and saying that, and he's told me this, uh, that I'm better for and I know more now than I knew three years ago. And, and he was asked three years ago to come in. He was asked to make strong, emphatic kind of changes. He did some, uh, managed to 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 wrestle some more money across from uh, New Zealand uh, from their Sky deal to help uh, support Australian rugby. It had to kind of you know get the get the loan from areas to to keep the game afloat. Uh, clearly, the big thing that he's been wrestling, um, resting on is is the fact that they managed to secure the Home World Cup, the Men's Home World Cup in, in 27 and the Women's uh, uh, package together with, in 29. Is there going to be changes? Look, there's been, there's been talk for a number of months and there's been talk for six, six weeks, certainly around the time of the loss to, to Fiji and then it, then it picked up a gear off the back of the defeat, the, the embarrassing defeat to, to Wales a week later and Leon. Uh, that talk hasn't necessarily gone away. Uh, their New South Wales clearly are uh, probably the, the pillar that that the rugby australia still have left standing. And that's because of the fact that they've signed up their, um, for the alignment package, i.e. decentralisation handing over the license, the keys there, um, and and Rugby Victoria and the Melbourne Rebels are still at this point in time uh, behind RA. Now, if, if those two pieces of the puzzle, would, or all those dominoes were to drop, then then I would imagine that there would be a move pretty quickly. Queensland are, are certainly not thrilled by the state of affairs. Uh, obviously, the ACT Brumbies uh, aren't, aren't either with the... Uh, totalitarian kind of leadership style that Hamish has been operating with. And the Western Force are a little bit ambiguous at the moment around where, where they actually are. And um, the fact that there's 4,000 kilometres away as well is probably just means that that's still left up in the air a bit. Uh, is there going to be changes? I, I, I still think it's quite possible. Is it probable? I'm not sure. But the review taking place could reveal certain things and whether or not it's made public or not is, is another thing. Um, we, we know that there's a fair bit of criticism around who's doing the review at the moment with Justin Harrison, the, the many things that, you know, he's juggling the fact that he's the Rupert boss. How does that, you know, the players pay his wage by being the head of Rupert. Um, how would that impact on the players? Uh, we know that he's, that he's a commentator with Stan. Um, I also see the fact that there's actually probably not too many people more heard in Australia rugby that know more about the strengths and weaknesses than him because he is across things like the the central bargaining, uh, the, the collective bargaining agreement rather. And uh, but it's but it's not it's not independent then, is it? No, no, it's not. And and yeah, uh, but at the same time, um, you know, Andrew Slack, a lovely man who worked, uh, who played obviously right throughout the eighties, Grand Slam tour, you know. 
captain of the Australia First World Cup. He's not played a game of professional rugby in 30 years. Now, is he fully equipped to to know what a professional program in the 20 you know in 2023 looks like? Um, uh, and and similarly, the the third person who escapes my name, you'll be able to to jog that memory in a moment, Brucey, and then there's obviously going to be some Pacific, uh, Pacific representation, which will be there, I, I, I dare say, is um, able to kind of know what's going on to be able to pass on to the heavy, strong Pacific uh, representation throughout Australian rugby landscape. So that how that and what is found from the review could actually play a, a great part in terms of the future of not only Hobish McLennan, but the entire board. Uh, and I imagine this being November 3, that that those review findings will be handed down in about a month's time. And uh, So I wouldn't imagine anything to occur over the next couple of weeks, but certainly by early December, there could be something. And, and how, um, whether or not, and we might find out more about this in the weeks to come, by having Hamish McLennan there as chairman, what, is that going to impact on RA's ability to find not only a head coach but a head of high performance? And and would a head coach want to come on board, particularly a foreign head coach, if someone like a Hamish McLennan is still there? And and then valid questions, the questions they're going to have to get to the bottom of, they'll be able to find out more, I'd imagine, in the next couple of weeks as they start to have conversations, but um, and, and all very private conversations, but drawing up a short list. And they'll be able to work out whether or not Hamish McLennan being there is a hindrance or uh, it doesn't matter. And if it is proving to be hindrance, that could also shape his future with, with Rugby Australia. Yeah, Darlene Harrison, uh, no relation, relation of Justin. No. Uh, the uh, the third member of that panel, uh, head of former head of UK coaching sport, I believe, and spent time with both um, the AIS and the Australian Sports Commission. So she certainly will be independent and I guess we'll bring that expertise on the the coaching uh, side of things. Um, yeah, it, it's a good point around the, the the recruitment, the appointment process now moving forward. And um, Phil War on, on Tuesday and what was a, a marathon press conference ran about uh, 35 minutes just over. Um, Did he have re- any water? Re- no water. No water. And he, he certainly answered every question potentially or did dance around a number of them. But um, he he was saying that, look, we'll, we'll take, we've got, um, virtually, you know, what is it? Nine months until um, the Wallabies will play Wales, I think, in a couple of tests in July next year. And there may be one more. I think they're working on, on getting in that. That's Fiji. F- F- Fiji. I've also heard Georgia mentioned obscurely, but I don't know if that was that was accurate. Um, they, so they've got a bit of time and they, they want to um, go out to market and find the, the best coach available for the, the group and the, the current, I guess, ecosystem that Australian rugby finds itself in. Now, um, was asked about Ian Foster. Could he be an option? Now, now number one, I don't think anyway that Fozzie would end up um, coaching Australia uh, just months after taking the All Blacks to a World Cup. As much as you know, as much fury as he may have for New Zealand rugby and how he's, um, you know, the final year of his tenure was was handled last year. Um, but it is, you know, and you've made the point before when I've asked you about this. It is an attractive job given about the golden runways we keep hearing about that lies ahead. The lines, of course, in 2025 and, and 2027. But then you compare that with the absolute shit show that has been head office, not just, you know, in the past couple of years. You, you probably think back to, I guess, <clears throat> you know, even 
John O'Neill's second tenure and when he returned. And, and maybe that's the message here. As Robbie Dean said this week, you don't go back. All right. Uh, maybe that's the major good line for, for Australian rugby. There could be a, a line in there for, for one Michael Checker and, and those on this panel who will make the decision um, about the next coach moving forward. But it, it would have to be, you know, a major concern for any coach taking this job uh, or dealing with the folk at Moore Park that can I, will I have autonomy? How much will I have? Will I be able to, you know, assemble the team I want? Um, uh, I mean, they kind of turned over the reins completely to Eddie Jones and, and wound up in this position. Um, and then you think back to how Dave Rennie was, was summoned and, and kicked, um, sent to the exit door, you know, um, uh, all in the space of sort of 24, 48 hours earlier this year. And um, I mean, you'd be a brave Kiwi to take on the Australian job again now. I think it'll be some time before we see that happening, but um they're the two things to consider aren't they that okay this is a wonderful opportunity to be you know a bit like tony gustafson and the matildas to to be working towards a home world cup and having the the chance to unite the nation and um bring everyone together around a, a national sporting team that has you know certainly slipped from its former glory and considerably down in in terms of the recognition of the average man and woman a, a, around the country um but it still would burn inside to say, oh, yeah, that would that would be something that I would be excited by. On the flip side, well, I've got to deal with this mob and, and can I do that? Can I deal with the politics of a clearly what is a misfunctioning um, wider Australian rugby cohort where the unions, you know, squabble against each other, admit a battle for centralisation? Um, could I be successful in that role? They're, they're two big questions that any applicant will be considering. Totally. And... And you can probably add into that what's the what what is the talent stocks like? Because I know that that Eddie Jones when he returned and he was told, encouraged by some people around him not to return, but he pointed to the fact that there is talent in Australia. Right? Now whether or not he still thinks that on his way out remains to be seen. But I, I look at it, I go look. There's a fair bit of uh, power in the tight head position when guys fit. Uh, there's a fair bit of power and second row stocks when guys like Darts and Swain didn't really even get close to selection. You know, look at the back row, um, the amount of young tenants that are very young, but there's a, a group of them that you go are good looking players. So, um, you know, the, the talent out wide with Marie, uh, with with Mark Nwanganidawas, the fact that Len Ikatau was fit but still didn't go into the uh, to the World Cup. So there is you know, Max Jorgensen. Um, there's there's talent there, uh, and that's the thing that I would be looking at going. The Wallabies underperformed astronomically uh, throughout this World Cup and throughout 2023, and they probably weren't uh, reaching their heights in 2022 or 2021, and they had opportunities in 2020 and didn't take them either. So I would look at that and go, well, right, if I'm a good coach, Bar can't get any lower. The only way is up. Uh, and there is, as you say, a couple of really headline events. There's 18 months. There's quite a long uh, window now that you can kind of go, right, Wales in 2024, that's not really going to intimidate you too much. You can get a couple of, you can chalk up a couple of wins and you should be targeting three wins there realistically. And then you'll have an end of season spring tour to formulate and crystallize your ideas coming into 24. Like, even from a, a foreign perspective, if you were to go down that route from a head coach, I would think that 
well, Dave Rennie has been shafted. How did that work out? Um, and how did that reflect on our aid? Is it likely to happen again within a, a, a short term? I wouldn't think so. So I, I think whoever takes it, and, and, and it is attractive, uh, shouldn't be thinking, right, I'm in pole position now because I, I should be supported. Uh, we know that that jumping at shadows has a word. We know that 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 uh, waving goodbye to people on the bring on the on the on the horizon with the World Cup on the horizon less than twelve months out that didn't work either. So it's not going to happen next time. Wouldn't think so. So yeah, who it is is a is a great question. Uh, we could we could draw up a map a, a list of of names right now and go right. Is this person? You know, there's probably three Australian candidates that. Yep. That, that look very attractive in terms of we know that uh, Michael Checker is, is certainly he's off contract uh, he's coached the Wallabies previously took Argentina to the World Cup semi-finals uh, he would be a very easy fit to come back for a two-year period leading into the Lions we know that he's interested in coaching the Wallabies again there are questions around it you know we know that he's an explosive kind of volatile figure. We know that Bill Wall was on the board in 2018-19 when that check was blowing everything up. And, and you know, for many people, it was, let's get rid of this guy as quick as possible. Um, you know, Dan McKellar's up at Leicester in England. Is he is he a couple of years maybe premature from where, he, where you'd want him to be, perhaps, before offering him a role like this, perhaps? Um, but there's respected... Uh, Stephen Larkin, we don't need to necessarily lay out his CV, but he's a guy that once again has spent time overseas, three years at Munster, three seasons at Munster. Uh, didn't necessarily enhance his reputation, I don't think, but it was definitely a different experience for him, which will be viewed at Bonley. So they're three. I think Joe Schmidt would be outstanding from New Zealand. Uh, what his next move is remains to be seen. It's close enough to obviously back home where his family is. Um, that that may be an attractive kind of role, but who would be a director of rugby? I would imagine that they would want to have be able to work very very closely with. I don't, I can't see Czech working closely with the DOR, whereas I can see Larkham and McKellar having no problems and having, you know, the egos wouldn't be an issue there. So. They're probably the four names that I would think of. I, I can't think of anyone else who would be necessarily ready. Vern Cotter, I wouldn't think would be appropriate for it. Uh, Jamie Joseph is with the Highlanders. He's close to Dave Reddy. I can't imagine him even considering it. So, uh, Tony Brown, there's always been questions as to whether he's a head coach or an assistant. Um, hasn't led an international side previously. But there's also the four years as you've spoken about, the runway here. I, I think there would be a, a preference for it to be an Australian, but it wouldn't necessarily have to be an Australian. No, I think you've, you've outlined the, the key candidates there. And I think a lot of people probably will have seen Czech's reaction to when interviewed um, after Argentina's loss in the in the bronze medal playoff game with England last weekend. And just the... Uh, I, it wasn't great conduct from Czech either. He wasn't um, looking really at... Louise Ransom, um, friend of ours, um, when he was doing that interview. And I just found it a little bit arrogant. And, and for a lot of people, that's... A bit dismissive. It was. It was, you know, it was disappointing, I thought, from Czech, because I thought that he'd probably learned from the way he exited Australian rugby about the need to just kind of get that out of his his conduct. And 
I think that for a lot of people would have been, well, no, I don't want to see Chek back in that role. Um, and, and, and on that, Sam, he was told by a couple of people very close to him, what were you doing? You know, like you might have just blown any opportunity or any chance that you had of coming back. He was told that directly within the space of 24 hours. Well, well, there you go. Uh, I mean, it just struck me as really poor at that time. I, I felt sorry for Lou. Um, anyway, uh, McKellar, though, that Christy, he's surely got to be the number one candidate, right? Like, I I feel that, you know, Stephen Larkham maybe just needs another year or two in, in Super Rugby. Of course, Dan has only been recently up at, at Leicester, and, and who knows, he may see it himself that he wants to um, see out that contract just for his own. I guess no, integrity is probably the wrong word, but experience and, um, as you mentioned, um, being involved in a different um, competition and a different style of rugby, and um, perhaps that may see swing him to to staying up there, and that may shift it into into Stephen Larkham's um, court. I couldn't see Joe Schmidt doing it either. Um, he's, you mentioned the family; I think he's pretty keen to sort of set up camp in New Zealand. As he originally returned uh, when he departed Ireland, it was all about going home and and spending a bit more time, quality time with his family. Um, and then was kind of coerced into the Blues and then coerced into the All Blacks from there and and very nearly played a, a key role in leading them to a fourth World Cup. So who knows how it will play out? They've, they've obviously got a few months to do it. I've, I've seen Simon Rowalui's name thrown out there. I think he might have another job lined up elsewhere. Um, Todai Kefu, obviously coach of, of Tonga, a bloke with, you know, massive, uh, it's probably the wrong word, manner. That's a Kiwi word in, Austra- in Australian rugby, but is revered in the game. Uh, probably doesn't have the the expertise or experience of that super rugby kind of level to this point in his career, um, but he could be an option down the track potentially. So, uh, look, it's going to be fascinating to see who they land on because there are so many things for, I guess, the game to consider, but for each of those individuals at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And and how whether or not they need a head coach or a director of rugby first. And there is a bit of talk about maybe that changed and it was going to change on who the head coach was going to be beyond 23 as to whether or not it was going to be more of a a high performance kind of guru or more of a director of rugby. And they are slightly different roles. So whether or not RA decides we need to have one in place first before we land on the second remains to be seen. And that's a big question that they're going to have to come to to terms with Uh, and I would imagine that they'll be moving on that by the end of this month. By the end of the night of November, we should know and have been much more clear regarding that. I was just speaking to a few people before we did the podcast today, and and you know, I was even floated, even given the fact that it is it doesn't seem like there's uh, necessarily an out and out um, natural fit replacement like there was, say, when Checker took over from Ewan McKenzie. We've got to remember Ewan McKenzie resigned. Uh, it seemed very natural, Michael Checker having just led the Waratahs to glory for him to take yep. over the reins. I, I, I can't see that at the moment. There's not many head coaches. That's a real issue for Australian rugby in general. We need to be able to find a, an avenue and a place, and the Australia A program is doing that very well. But you know, Jason Gilmore is still not a head coach of the Super Rugby program. So I was always a bit perplexed by why is, a, why is Jason Gilmore the head coach of that program when he's not a head coach of the Super Rugby. We don't really quite know how he goes with running a program on a week-to-week basis, even though there's some people, and I know the playing crew really likes Gilly. Um, but there was, it was floated. Why don't we, if we don't actually know who the next logical replacement is, why don't we just go, well, let's 
if we're talking about alignment, we're talking about uh, everyone in Australian rugby pulling together. Why don't we pull the best coaches from each of the different Super Rugby programs? So you might have a, a Les Kiss and a Stephen Larkham to come together and perhaps you pull a Tim Sampson yep. and you pull a Simon Cron from Western Force and you, and, you know, so the second, you know, obviously they're going to be working across super programs. They'll know the rugby back to front for that first six months of the year. And that second six months, they pay them individually, come together. And then maybe you do need that head of high performance, that director of rugby role who perhaps oversees it. Perhaps he's the chief or he or she is the chief uh, selector. Uh, and we push this decision down a year down the road and, and maybe it comes off, maybe it works out. Um, but it does seem like there's not enough head coaches with real experience across Super Rugby as it, as it stares. Les Kidd coming back is a great thing. He's so experienced from uh, overseas, but he hasn't spent much time in Super Rugby programs. We don't know how he's going to go. Simon Cron's still in the infancy, really, of his head coaching tenure. Uh, Kevin Foote similarly down in the Rebels already a couple of years into it so Darren Coleman has been around for a long time but only into his third season and had a massive huge speed bump last last year so we're probably a year or two away from knowing the pecking order around where these head coaches are how they handle the experience so it yeah having a check come in for 18 months it actually does make a lot of sense because therefore you wouldn't be distracting a lot of the other programs and allowing for much more growth but i just can't see australian rugby uh with with how ugly his exit was i can't see him for now coming back and uh and then being that trust that everything is going to be okay even though he might in fact be the most uh, credentialed candidate. I, just off the back of the Eddie Jones experience, to, I know that they're very different people. Uh, I just I just don't know if, if Czech is the man for now. Andy Friend, another name, uh, has probably been mentioned more with the, the high-performance role, I think, potentially, mm-hmm. than, than the coaching job. And, and certainly when I was speaking to him uh, the week of the quarterfinals, uh, he said he was um, looking forward to returning home and, and essentially seeing where the cards uh, fell. So... Um, there's another name for you moving forward. Um, if we if we zero in on on Eddie Christie, um, I mean he was he was interviewed a couple of weeks ago at Coogee Oval, um, and by this stage, you know, I don't think anyone was believing what was coming out of his mouth, um, and was continuing to say that yes, I'm committed to Australian rugby. Did another interview with uh, Channel 9's Danny Wyther on the news on, I think it was Monday night, and. And they become, you know, a master of it. And we saw it in France, didn't we, around the fact that he couldn't give a straight answer to this this link with Japan. I'm, I'm committed to Australian rugby. Well, for how long? I'm committed to Australian rugby. The other night, I think he was asked, um, have you ever had an interview with, with Japan? Well, I haven't got a job lined up. So a master of answering the question without answering the question directly. So I think that one's a, a bit of a watch this space and, and whether he lines up in that job, we will find out in the next month or so. But... Um, he said he really only had one regret and that was, um, that confrontation with the media at, at Sydney airport and, and telling, you know, the gathered group that day to, to give themselves uppercuts and becoming quite antagonistic, um, throughout the whole process of the past few months. Um, but do you think there are, you know, some other regrets in there, you know, behind the scenes, um, you think about the non-selection of, of Quade Cooper and, and Michael Hooper, I don't think that would have changed things 
maybe not on Hooper's part directly, um, but I, f- I always said that I, I felt that the, the omission of Quade Cooper in particular, not having a backup 10 and a recognised goal kicker um, was an oversight. Um, what do you think, that, you know, Eddie's a few moments to himself might be might be considering and, and when he looks back on what was a, a terrible nine months in charge? Yeah, it's it's where to start. Look, to to begin with, uh, me being at that media conference and you know, copying the odd sledge and the occasional endorsement as well, you you can't read too much into it. I've never really cared like what he thinks really about you, um, because a lot of it is a is a bit of game for it. And speak to yeah. those around him, and they all go, he loves his games, he loves a bit of banter, and uh, maybe in this modern age, and I don't think he understood that coming back to Australia, it's such a different media landscape to it is in England. Uh, now than what it was, say, 20 years ago with the, the Jenkinses of the world, the Groudens, etc. Um, but I still think that he fundamentally thinks that he got the selection more or less right. Um, and I don't think he was miles away. I think there's a few in there that I've gone... I, I still thought he should have gone Ryan Lonig in there because he's a goal kicker, uh, leadership skills, really highly valued. And I probably would have taken him over Isaac Fines, Lele Wasa, even though I thought he had a good season, Fines, Lele Wasa. I agree. I think he needed to have an experienced 10, but I probably would have taken him over Ben Donaldson. And I wouldn't have had Sully Wunavalu in there and I would have probably had a Tom Wright. Uh, and, and I certainly would have had Lenny Katow uh, if he was if he was fit. As for Isaiah Nongo, we know that Alan Alatoa was injured. Uh, I probably would have had a Sam Talakai in there. But then I would probably... There's not a huge amount in it, and and that's the point that I come back to regarding selection. I think it was more the coaching stuff that he acknowledged that he got wrong, and I think the game style he tried to bite up too much uh, that he could chew. And a few people have said that he threw Carter Gordon under the bus by saying, "Look, if we catch a ball against Fiji, we probably win that game. We'll probably uh, manage to go through the quarterfinals." Look, I. Well, I think Carter Gordon will respond really well from this. I think the fact that he's had this experience will, will actually benefit him. I know that there are some concerns. We don't know. It's hypothetical at this moment. But the fact that he's had the pressure of playing on such a grand stage, I think a lot of these players will kick on. And that's maybe, you know, he's, he said that he doesn't want to be considered as a martyr. I used that word in the story six weeks ago. I, I think he will continue to trot that line out. And as this current Wallabies group, gets better over the next couple of years uh, he'll be able to kind of fall back on that and he's kind of already tried to do that hasn't he over the last month but he he he's he, his personality won't allow him to reflect on it by thinking that he got it got it miles roll and i don't think you will ever be able to accept that uh, I, I still think and i've said it uh, he's the way that he kind of slammed the door out um uh, with, with Michael Hooper, some of the language that he used there was completely unnecessary. Um, yeah, and it was disrespectful. We heard Phil War talk about that earlier in the week at the press that you were out. So where he ends up, good question. And, and some of the language that he used, yeah, it, it was it a, I don't know, you've got to say that he's, and he said, I've been having conversations for a long time with Japanese rugby and, and Japanese rugby officials. Was it an interview? Was it not? It, it, did he need the interview? Like, we know who he is. Like, I think everyone knows who Eddie Jones is. Would he have needed to do a first interview? I'm not sure. But 
I have no doubt that he had spoken to them, but in what capacity the conversation was about, I think it does remain to be seen um, to an extent. But it's quite possible he ends up there. I, I still think my tip would maybe be Franz Ledecky that ends up there. Um, but we'll, we'll see. And we know that he wants to coach in another World Cup cycle in much the same way that Ian Foster seemingly does as well, which is, I think, just as fascinating. The fact that a guy that spent 12 years coaching the All Blacks wants to go coach elsewhere. I think that tells you a lot around how these head coaches operated. They're so obsessed by coaching that one when one door perhaps closes or is closing, they want to jump into an excellent, go through the, the next window. Yeah, sorry if you're just picking up a bit of background, uh, screeching everyone. No, that's no, all good. My son's just really testing out his lungs here at the moment. Um, yeah, yeah. Phil War's press conference, Christy, the other day, and it's something that I've I pushed him on on a couple of times when he fronted up to the media in France around that that this campaign felt expendable. It felt as though that everything had been, every ball was in the court for 2027, uh, the Lions series as well. And as, as Hamish McLennan told me at, at Dremoyne Oval on the Wallabies farewell event, that it's all about 2027 and working backwards. Now, now Phil tried to you know distance himself from those comments, or at least say that that wasn't the case, that um, I want to assure every Australian rugby supporter out there that we were going to 2023 to win the World Cup. In Not in those exact words, but, but certainly in, in very similar sentiments. Now, I think the average Australian would say, well, no, that's that's garbage. Yeah, the way this year unfolded, um, you you threw away a campaign, um, not that one that anyone thought Australia were going to go to and, and go on and win, um, but potentially one where they could have got to a semifinal with a group of players that they had, even considering the injuries that happened. Uh, but instead, you, you brought in a coach who... Was given the the I guess the um, the plan to to work to twenty twenty seven, one that he was never committed to in the first place, as we learned basically from as early as May, um, and and that uh, that was just a little bit facetious from from Phil. I, I don't know whether he and, and Hamish have had discussions around that directly. I'm sure they have, but the the messaging, as I wrote today, is it's just been twisted and turned and tweaked to to fit how this season has unfolded and and for Phil to try and make that call the other day um I just don't think people will buy that that there is an underlying feeling out there that this this season was a write-off um and that the World Cup the 2023 World Cup probably got exactly what it deserved um when the decisions that were made along the way um were made um and that you know the the tournament was essentially cast aside that it, that uh what should be the the showpiece uh, of every campaign, every four-year cycle. And he also mentioned that, okay, we've got to start winning between World Cup cycles. Well, why then do you go and hire the bloke who, when he was coaching England, was every every defence to every defeat was, oh, it's, we'll, we'll be peaking in, peaking at the World Cup. It's all about the World Cup. So th- there's been too much shifting of the, the deck chairs, if you like. And um, I think that's certainly the feedback that I'm getting from supporters, whether it be on social media, among my mates, friends and family, people who are messaging me about um, just the, the absolute shit show that it has been this year. That that's, that's the sentiment, right? That um, and, and where to now? Like I, I know people have just completely even walked away from the game, rusted on rugby fans that have just essentially had enough. Well, I think everyone's had enough in 2023. Like, it's, there's no doubt about that. Oh, Hamish, to his credit, I think, has always been talking about 27. And you can understand why, given... 
given even as recently as the Matildas, the runway with the Matildas, like this was a squad a squad that wasn't setting the house on fire, were they? And and they even lost with it to Nigeria in the full stage, and everyone thought, yeah. well, hang on, they're, they're miles of pace. Yet they turned it around and made it a semi final, and they brought the entire nation with them. And perhaps women's sport in Australia has changed forever, and hopefully so. Um, but I, I I stand by the fact that Hamish was always talking about twenty seven. And yeah, he's, he's kind of changed the narrative a little bit by saying that they were concerned that they wouldn't get out of the pools with Dave Rennie. That wasn't the case. I think they were concerned that it wouldn't go far and be able to challenge for a semi-final. And they wanted to get Eddie Jones because they thought he was the right person to drive the Wallabies through to 27. Now, clearly that hasn't happened. And Bill War and Hakeem's language, I don't know if it's necessarily shifted because he wasn't the spokesperson throughout that time over the last 18 months, and clearly he has over the last uh, five well, 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 certainly maybe they have shifted, but they haven't all been aligned on yeah. a common goal. No, and look, what's Eddie Jones going to do? He's always going to come back and go, no, of course we can challenge for the Home World Cup. And I think he actually legitimately thought he, if they could. That certainly changed up that week in Pretoria where they were smashed in, in, in every aspect of the game and they and they played really poorly. Um it's history will be it'll be fascinating to see how history looks at it, how history looks at this wallaby side come twenty five and come twenty seven. And that's where I think we will get our greatest idea about how much Eddie Jones stuffed up. Because if the likes of Carter Gordon, uh if the likes of Tom Pooper uh, those sorts of players come through and they really succeed on the grand international stage of 25 and 27. Perhaps the decision of the last six months could be proven to be the right ones, but there's a you're backing these guys that you're that they were the right people indeed because there's so many young tens challenging for that position at the moment now. Whether or not the next international coach also believes that Carter Gordon is the right person for that 10 role going forward and he kicks on, we'll see in the coming years. I think that'll be the greatest um, judgment of, of where Eddie Jones and how where you know how history looks back on him. Because I look at this squad and, Brucey, what do you think? Going forward, in this, this side... You know, if, if Quade Cooper and Foley had been at 10, there's no way that the Donaldsons and the Carter Gordons get the opportunity that they did now. Like, they've basically ripped it off. And clearly, generally speaking, at the end of a World Cup year, uh, cycle, there's a massive turnover. Um, and, and mate, yeah, that, that's, that's happened one year earlier, uh, quite obviously. And we're going to see with the All Blacks next year how they respond under a very good young international coach in, in Razor Robertson. But his farewelling sticks to eight unbelievable players, generational-type players there. And, and this was my point, and I think you and I have disagreed on this before around the, the time you leased into the, the Lions series. Now, surely having two tests against Wales next year would have been a better time to ease Carter Gordon into the situation. Now, now I would have played him this year as well, but would I have, as I've, as I've said, um, would I have thrown him out there at the World Cup with not having a backup in the squad? Absolutely not. Um now that that was poor management in my mind. Um, so, look, I, I still think Carter Gordon's got a lot to to offer Australian rugby going forward. I think you know I'd love to see him back in there next year. I think if Dan McKellar potentially does get the job, does apply, we're all dibbling in hypotheticals now that that will probably bring Noah Lolasio back into consideration again as well. Potentially, he's just had a stint with um, Toulon, I believe. 
as a yeah. as a World Cup joker, as they call it. Um, how is he going to come back from that? Probably better for it. Um, you know, another half a dozen games at least, I would think, um, uh, behind him Richer. this year. Yeah. Richer yeah. for it, no, no doubt. So, look, you can pluck out silver linings here, there, and everywhere, and. and you know, as I say, I'll I'll be back next year. It's the the game's too runs too deep in my blood to to throw it all away. And um, you know, I, I feel like it's um, I'm, I'm ready for a spell and and to just think about something else for a little while. But um, I'm just trying to you know uh, pass on the frustration that I guess is being passed on to me, um, and I'm sure you you as well. Um, but yeah, look. Uh, it is an exciting and I guess you know slightly overwhelming time for you know when you when you look ahead to to what's coming. Um, you know, centralisation is going to be bubbling along in the background. Will that be achieved to the degree that they want? I certainly don't think so. It looks like it'll be a bit more ad hoc, certainly across the franchises, as we've um, discussed already. Um, who who sits in that high performance role? Who's the next Wallabies coach? These are all things that are going to play out over the next few months and. And then Super Rugby, I guess, will be back before we know it. So, um, yeah, I, I guess the best thing is that for a lot of people, they'll be able to park this year. And and as we said, that, that Eddie Jones will become persona non grata for a while now. And, you know, I'm sure he'll be back at some stage and there'll be various speaking engagements maybe later in life ahead of Bledisloe's. And, and who knows what might come out then. There's a, a really good in, uh, article in the Herald today, actually, by colleagues of ours, Ian Payton and Tom Deason, that um, everyone should have a read of around... Uh, their summation of, of the year and, and an unnamed wallaby source around some of the, uh, basically, uh, what went on um, in France and what we were told, you know, as you might expect around, did they read that particular article that, that outed Eddie Jones or alleged Eddie Jones has had that interview with the Japanese Rugby Union where we were told, no, it wasn't discussed by a number of wallabies in the mix zone that night. And I don't think really any of us believed him in this day and age of, of social media and having, you know, access to... Um, whatever you like in, in a couple of swipes on your phone. So, um, but yeah, look, I know that's a bit of a ramble, but it, it kind of feels like there's, there's been so much to, to consider this year, um, that, um, a lot of people will be ready for a spell and, and hopefully we'll, we'll come back when super rugby kicks off, I guess, in, in sort of mid to late February. Yeah. I think people will be much more prepared for, for 2024 and Robbie Deans even said it the other day that, you're never as bad as what things are and they're never as good as where they are. And I think that's where the Wallabies are. They're certainly, we know that they're not great, but we also probably are aware that they're not terrible either. With, 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 yeah. their, with their best team on the paddock, they're not number 10 in the world or number nine, whatever they are. You know, they're, they're more in that group with, with Scotland, with England, I think. Clearly the top four are the top four and we were privy to see those magnificent quarterfinals, the two best games I think I've seen live. Yeah. Um, certainly outside of the 2000. Let us know at Stadium Australia, the greatest game that ever was. Um, but yeah, they're, they're not a number nine ranked team with their best 15, best 23 out there. Yeah. So I think the message is that all hope's absolutely not lost. The fact that the Noah CEO, and we've got to remember, he was, I think, treated really poorly under Dave Rennie's leadership yep. around how he was in and out of the side from week to week. And you could only imagine how he was feeling. And certainly over the last six months. Now, he's going to come back and do a Brunbury's program. How he goes will be fascinating, particularly with the next head coach. He is a guy with 20 caps of experience now. But Carter Gordon will be infinitely better for having the experience of playing in front of 80,000 against Georgia and Paris. Uh, 
60,000 off the bench, seeing it all go and unfold before his eyes against uh, Wales, starting against Fiji, a hostile environment, 44,000 and Sinedian, and then having to sit and watch it all play out in front of him when he was ruled out. Now, these guys, if they're, if, if they're worth their soul as a player, it's high-performance sport. It is high-performance sport. And sometimes we can be a bit sympathetic about these players. Yes, they're humans and the rest of it, but they're paid very, very good money. More, more than the common person. So we've got to demand high expectations. And I think a lot of these guys will actually be better for it. They, they still really respected Eddie Jones. A lot of these players, they still thought he was uh, had a lot of... Um, they could clearly see the expertise that he was, the the head coach of 20-odd years of international experience. But there was also things along the way that they questioned, and that's a great thing. Uh, I have no doubt they'll be better uh, under a new coach next year. And hopefully we've done some job of unpicking this, the year that was. But there's so much of the context that you also need to provide regarding uh, how we came to this state of play and it's a couple of big months ahead to get ensure that you get the right people as either a DOR, a head coach, or a head of high performance into a head coach because uh, this in the next four years is going to be much more critical than the year that 2023 was. And that is also why, and just to finish up on Hamish McLennan, that is the thing that I think if he is to be saved and kept into the job, Hamish McLennan and his relationships with the key executives across different broadcast networks is the one thing that could kind of keep him in the role. The fact that he is in contact with News Corp, with the Foxtels of the world, the Patrick Delaney's of the world, including the Mike Sneesby's from the Nines, from the Stands, from the Tens and the Paramounts, um, the, the Sevens, they're ensuring that they get the best broadcast deal, making sure they get a minimum of an extra $20 million come into the uh, per year up from say 20, 27 I think it is uh, ensuring that they get it above that into a, around 50 million is, is essential uh, for a bare minimum but surely Christy 2023 has is, is damaged that um, that opportunity or, or do you honestly feel that there'll be competitive tension out there in the marketplace now you and I are both former employees of, of Fox Sports and by extension News Corporation Um do you, do you feel that there is legitimately an interest on their part to, to get to get rugby back? Yeah. Yeah. And and it may be for the best interests of them, but also maybe in the best interests to try to kill off Stan and Nod because we know that rugby is out there. Now, think of that what you will, but I have no doubt that they'll come back into the market. Um, my thought is that it doesn't matter who, who, who ends up getting it as long as, and, and hopefully Stan no and do continue it, but as long as there's more money coming into the game, because my fundamental belief is that Stan and nine by paying less than $30 million a year is actually um, doing more harm than good. They might be doing a great job in terms of um, the broadcast, producing yeah. and the broadcasting of it, because I think they are doing a good job of it. But, uh, the fact that they're paying so little is actually doing, I think, more harm than good for the overall game because the fact is that they absolutely, and they're quite rightly able to do it, but they lowballed RA big time to get this deal across the line when COVID was occurring. So there needs to be more money coming to the game, and that's the key responsibility now of Hamish McLennan, both the broadcasting, which won't be happening for quite a while, uh, I wouldn't think, and uh, ensuring that we get the best possible high performance set up 
uh, over the next two months so that this Wallabies uh, team can start to flourish once again. Yeah, Stan don't talk publicly around exactly, you know, what they what their subs numbers are, um, the streams that they're getting, the users. I think there was a genuine uptick by reports for the World Cup now, whether they continue on, who knows. But it's certainly the the backbone of that platform, isn't it, around the, the Champions League and um, a bit of tennis. But, you know, without the Nick Kyrgios's of the world and the Roger Federer's and the Rafa Nadal's and, um, you know, tennis is probably interest-wise is on the nose. So maybe you're right on that, that front that they, I know they're, they're very happy with their partnership with, with Rugby Australia, as I understand it. But, um, yeah, they feel like they got a steal and, and maybe they won't get a steal um, next time around. Um, but another fascinating... Um, sidebar to watch next year mate before we wrap up um, be remiss if we don't chat a little bit about the Wallaroos last week now this is a massive win for that team isn't it and and I think we, we've all seen in patches over the last few years uh, the kind of rugby that they can play they just can't play it for long enough periods to to mix it with the professionalized sides of the world in New Zealand uh, England and, and France but they did that last week, and this was a, a brilliant performance. It was 29-20, I think, in the end, but there was a late try, late France try after the final siren. Um, and perhaps we're seeing the benefit of a team that, a bit like the World Cup last year, has had significant time together, training week to week together. Eva um, Capani, obviously, with a hat-trick, was, was fantastic. And when she was interviewed, a really lovely kind of, almost deer-in-the-headlights kind of interview that she gave after the final whistle around being, uh, what did you have to improve? Uh, uh, fitness, uh, more better. I just had to get fitter. And and perhaps that's what this little period has done and what potentially this team can do um, moving forward that when they, I think our, our Rugby Australia's on record is trying to get them to um, fully professional or at least a group of them by 2025. I, I think that's still the commitment. Um, but a, just a, a brilliant win for them last weekend. And if they can back that up tonight, we're recording this Friday lunchtime. Uh, they play Wales, um, who were absolutely hammered by New Zealand by, I think, about 75 points last week. If they get another win today uh, and finish with two out of three in this tournament, then that's going to be a, a huge result for this team. Exactly. And and what it would do was uh, if, if they were to go out and have a good performance tonight against Wales is you build on the success. So you've got that little bit of um, that energy, that spark, now, if they can consolidate that against Wales, what would that do leading into an off-season? It will make everyone work harder. It will make everyone feel better about themselves. It would do more about um, getting sponsorships into the game because they can see the steady uh, up curve around how things are going. So, yeah, But Eva Capani hit the nail on the head there. She's a person with immense potential. We've known yep. that for years. So I've, I remember speaking to her probably five years ago and everyone was like, wow, this person's very raw. That the amount of power that she has, the strength uh, on, her, on her back, back that is you know, tight heads destroy the games in both the men's and the women's. If you can have someone like her. Um, and and, and I, the fact the fact we talk about professionalizing sport that's allowing for an Eva Capani to spend more time on herself so that she can get fitter, get stronger. The same issues that Tanila Tupo talk about all the time. So, um, uh, oh, I was thrilled that that was occurring. Uh, that 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 Australia managed to beat France, um, their first win over top three nation in a long, long time, perhaps even ever. So. Uh, if they can back it up and consolidate, that'll be immense. And what it would do for negotiations with Rupa and with Rugby Australia over 
uh, a, a bit of a reset period for the next three four months will be quite influential as well leading into a super w kind of season next year as well so uh, awesome result. Hopefully they go out there this evening and, and, and have another strong performance against Wales. And, and kudos to World Rugby too for uh, setting up these the W15, uh, 1, 2 and 3. Um, I think it's it's been a long overdue and, and certainly a real step ahead for the women's game. Um, so, yes, good luck, Wallaroos, uh, this afternoon. Um, and uh, hopefully, you know, uh, greater things lie ahead for you in 2024 as well. Uh, mate, all right, that's um, that's a long one, but um, given the subject matter and um, where we've been this year, it, it's probably uh, necessary. Uh, and a hundred up, well done. It's been a pleasure, mate. I, I'm hoping you'll be back again next year. Can't wait, and it's such a big year because off the back of us, you know, what the drama of the last six months, particularly, all these sides know where they are at. What we all do can can recognise is that Australia's Super Rugby franchises need to start performing better. They need to get the results. The Waratahs can't afford to have a year where they just bumbled along from one match to the next. All five sides need to add so much motivation because if they can use the pain and the frustration from what this year was and harness it into next year, that can only be a the benefit for the game and particularly knowing that in three to four years time they're going to be hosting a world cup having experienced what we experienced by being in the crowds and the atmosphere world cups are big big things they're packed every ground is packed when when we we're in france and we we're so fortunate to be sitting and hearing the sort of sounds and that all sort of they're going to be playing for in two years time and in four years time so hitting the ground running in super rugby is essential the super rugby coaches a lot of them were over there we know that Darren Coleman was there. He experienced it all, and he's got a lot to prove himself. Uh, and, and the amount of motivation is what we should be looking at over the next couple of months. How hard are these guys prepared to train when they do come back to to start their pre-seasons or their in-seasons? Yeah, pre-seasons that will start earlier because of that uh, early exit by uh, at least a week or so. So um, there'll be some uh, summer slog going on in the not too distant future all right team uh thank you again for your uh your patronage over the last three years um hundred episodes up it was it was slow going to start with but it um hopefully we're we're bringing something to your uh, your weekly listing or even if you're joining us on a more ad hoc um uh, run then uh it's it's great to have you on board regardless and, and hope you'll be back next year uh we may have one or two pods yet to come we'll just see how the cards fall in the coming weeks and the run to Christmas, um, Christy, you deserve a break, mate. So I won't bother you. I wait to have a a couple of days off. I think we all need it just to be able to kind of collect our thoughts and feelings because there's just been so much that's gone on. And uh, you're right, you did a great great piece earlier in the week uh, for ESPN, and I enjoyed that uh, recapping the, the mess that was with Eddie Jones earlier this year. Thanks, mate, and thanks for your work at all year at the Raw. Uh, always engaging reading over there. And uh, hello to Tony Harper too, who uh, who was did a bit of driving for us around uh, France. Mate, hope you're uh, you're putting the feet up as well. Uh, all right, thanks everyone. Uh, we'll be back again uh, as required. Uh, and until then, uh, enjoy your weekends. Cheers.